Imagine you're John. You're, you have been persistent, stubbornly faithfully persistent in ministry of God's good news to the people around you. As he's taken you here and there, and God has finally brought John to the city of Ephesus, and he's leading the church there. And he's discipling others. And the churches have spread from Ephesus to the surrounding regions. And all the cities around have their own churches. And yet, it's a moment in the life of Ephesus where they, the city has this great honor that they have applied for and they have received, bestowed upon them the honor that they get to build the next grand temple to the emperor. Here in Ephesus, the emperor is going to be worshipped. But Rome is a little fussy. Rome doesn't like competition to their emperors. You see, their emperors are actually not that great of objects for worship. So they don't like competition for worship. And so John's gospel is competition. And John won't shut up. John will not stop. And finally, they move John out of Ephesus. So John's mess, they're trying to shut this thing down that competes all across the region. That those who turn the world upside down have come here also. They don't only turn the world upside down, they've turned lives upside down or right side up for Jesus. And that just won't do if we're trying to rally emperor worship in this grand new temple that we've built to Domitian. And so they exile John, and John is now alone. John has been pulled away from the ministry that he loved to these people that he loves. And the churches are increasingly under pressure to cave in and to give in, to go underground and to just be quiet, if nothing else, to go along with Rome and its best efforts to manage the mess themselves. John is set aside. John feels perhaps like he's been put on a shelf. Do you ever feel that way? Cut off, no longer have, able to do what you, what you did, have the freedom that you had. And what John needs is to see Jesus. John needs a fresh glimpse of his Savior in his glory as he will come. And that's exactly what John gets in Revelation chapter 1. And John shares that. In fact, he not only shares what, how the Lord shows himself to, to John, John shares with these seven churches a particular specific word from the Lord to each one of them, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to confront them where necessary, to, to call them to take the next step in, we will follow Jesus. Just as he does through his word for you and I. And after speaking individually to his own, then we're invited, the, the, the storyline is interrupted, and we're, we're invited into this scene in heaven, in the throne room of God himself. And there is this scroll, which is the judgment's to be played out upon the earth, to poured out upon the earth, to make all that has been wrong right. And yet there's no one who can open the scroll. There's no one who can initiate these judgments. And then there's the Lamb of God. One steps forward 
the Son of Man, as, of a, as a lamb slain. And he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. He is the one who is worthy to, to initiate God's judgment, God's rightful judgment upon a rebellious humanity. Why? Because he is the one who has already himself bore the wrath of God for our sin and rebellion. He has already paid the price in full for anyone who would believe in that. And you would think, well, that message has gone out all through time up until now. And yet, even as the first seals are open and things begin to get in the first half of the tribulation period, as those seals are open and the impact of, of, God's, of God's judgment begins to be felt upon the earth, it is an opportunity for people still to believe and to receive God's forgiveness to receive his mercy instead of his judgment. In fact, there are these we're introduced to in the, as, the, as the six seals are open, then we pause everything. Hold on, we're going to come back to that. But, but there's this scene in heaven. There's a pause. And we, we are introduced to these 144,000 unique witnesses who are going to be, I take it, like 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Just imagine. You take that impact of his ministry in his day and multiply it by 12 squared. God continues to send his invitation to a rebellious, hard-of-hearing humanity. And he has grabbed the earth, as it were, and shook it. And he does that still. Out of every tribe and nation and people there were told in this pause that are redeemed by faith in the blood of the Lamb perhaps by the testimony of these 144,000. And then as the time of tribulation, the seven-year period continues, there are these, the, the seventh seal judgment opens up into seven trumpets. And these trumpet judgments begin to fall, and they are even worse than what happened before. And yet even in the midst of that, the opportunity still remains. The invitation still goes out. And even at the end of the six trumpets, where again, it's, it's almost over. The worst is about to come, and yet, hold on, let's pause. Again, from chapters 12 through chapter 14, we have this panorama across the sky again where we're, we're given the bigger picture. What is this all about? Why is God so angry? What is it that is truly being judged? And is a rebellion is not merely a matter of humans won't do what God says. There's a much bigger rebellion afoot. There is a, a spiritual rebellion. There is this one who, uh, who was one of the highest angels in heaven who rebelled and said he would set his throne above God. And God says, no, you won't. There's only one God. The position is taken. It's already been filled. Before me there was no God formed, he says in Isaiah, neither will there be after me. I alone am he, God says, besides me there is no Savior. Even there in the declaration of his uniqueness, he turns to the message of a Savior for us. It's remarkable. Satan seeks to interrupt that. We're reminded in chapter 12 where there's this great serpent, the dragon, and he, he's, he's, he's poised, ready to devour the promised Savior when, as soon as he's given birth through Israel. In fact, that's, that dragon tried to interrupt that line all the way through human history tried to eliminate Israel before the Savior could be born, tried to eliminate him through Herod at his birth, tried to eliminate him through Rome at the crucifixion, and yet he rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand. 
the enemy is again thwarted. His efforts are futile. He is only further enraged. If he cannot touch God's Savior, he goes after those whom God saves. He goes after those whom God loves. The bad news is that's you and I as well. And his rage continues through time, even until now. And it's going to culminate at the end of time where, and I take it at the midpoint of the tribulation, when he goes too far to even say, God's temple is now my temple. And there's a statue of the Antichrist set up in the temple to be worshipped as God. And God says, this is enough. We're done here. And, and Satan has his visa revoked. He is no longer even given access into God's throne room in heaven where he can bring his accusations against you. He said, no, 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 please, please, Archangel Michael, would you escort Satan and his minions from the building? He puts his stuff in a cardboard box and he's escorted out the front doors. I know you wanted to see him frog march. That's coming. He will be bound. He will be cast into the pit. That's still coming. But in the meantime, he's, he's thrown down to earth and he is all the more enraged. And, and so he takes over and all hell breaks loose on earth. It is the worst that it has ever been. Through that second half of the tribulation, even as these trumpets are being sounded and God's judgment continues to, to, to fall and all to make known so that nobody on earth can be under any illusions that the day of God's judgment is at hand and everybody knows it. And yet what God does in the midst of all that as we come to chapter 14 is still he extends an invitation of mercy. How long, O Lord, will you wait? Remember that cry? Remember that song? How long, O Lord, how long? And yet he continues to extend an invitation in the midst of judgment coming, and it's about the finality of his judgment is about to fall in the seven bulls, which we're about to see come in chapters 15 and 16. Come back next week. But just before then, at the latest of hours, God continues to stretch out a hand and say, will you not please receive my mercy Believe in my Savior. Fear God, not the beast. Worship the creator, not the pretender. And that is the call of Revelation chapter 14. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the worst of time, there's a message for those who have received God's invitation. Those who are saved, redeemed by the blood of God's Savior. There's a message for them to hold on. God's kingdom is coming. God's harvest is, is, is near at hand. It is almost over. The, day, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Hold on to your hope. I am coming. And that is the promise. As John portrays this in the future, that applies to those churches that John is sending this to. Jesus has given this to John through the Spirit so that John can send it to those seven churches and also to us. So that those seven churches in the midst of a very difficult time in their day can be encouraged to hold on. Hold on to their hope. God's future is coming. And these things have been handed down to you and I. So in the midst of the stuff 
that you are facing. In the midst of yet still a godless age, in the midst where people slap away your invitation to God's rescue, to his Savior, they mock your childish faith. Does anybody still believe that anymore? How can you believe that? They, they, they trouble you. They ridicule you. They mock you. They will discriminate against you. Around the world, even today, people are killed for their faith in Jesus. For no other reason than that they dare to name the name of Jesus. That continues still. And what believers around the world, in all kinds of troubles, in the midst of our brokenness and the weariness of it, when the press not only of the world around us, but our own weakness wears in on us, we need to remind us, we need to be reminded, hold on to your hope. God's promise is coming. His kingdom is near. His harvest is sure. God will do what he says. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. That's chapter 14 in a nutshell. Now, it's much more complicated than that, unfortunately. We're going to see a reminder of God's kingdom, a specific glimpse in this interlude, in this pause before the bold judgment start, before the seventh trumpet sounds and the bold judgment starts. We have this pause. And in this pause, we're, 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 we're reminded, hold on, in the midst of troubles, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of hurts, in the midst of it not yet being as it should be, God's heart agrees with you. It is broken. It is wrong. And yet he's about to restore. Hold on to your hope. God's future is coming. The future of his kingdom, we'll get a glimpse of that at the start of the chapter. We will be told to direct our eyes as well to the sureness of his harvest. The harvest that he said would come, will come. It's a harvest of rescue, it's a harvest of judgment, and his harvest is coming. As surely as one month follows another, God's harvest is coming. The time for his harvest is at hand. In the middle of that, there's a bunch more angels doing some other crazy things, and there is a particular word of encouragement for us. So I want us to look at the chapter Look for that. First of all, we're going to look and behold. His kingdom is coming. At the end of the chapter, we're going to look and behold. His harvest is coming. In the middle of that, oh, there's a bunch more angels. We'll read about that too. So let's read the, the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. I invite you to open, open your Bible, your device. Uh, take the Bible in the pew in front of you, page 1036. Open to Revelation 14. Follow along as I read. Then I looked and behold... On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion through the Old Testament, this is God's kingdom. God with his people in his kingdom on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. The king has come. And with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Those that we met before who he has kept sealed, he has protected all the way through. They are still there with him. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. There's that scene in chapter 4, the throne room of God. 
And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouths no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pause and talk about these 144,000. There we see them now on Mount Zion. As I said, there are several references I gave you in the notes in the bulletin where you see Mount Zion as, as, as the Lord in his kingdom. That's what we're supposed to get from that. And there's this unique company of redeemed, the first fruits of all Israel will be saved. Zechariah 12 describes it. Romans chapter 11 describes it. And these were the first fruits of that. And he has kept them. God has done what he said. He said he sealed them. He said he would keep them. And not one of them is lost. And here they are. We're told there's 144,000 of them back in chapter 7 because God hasn't lost a one. They are his own. And they're singing a new song. And it's a song in God's presence. It's a song of worship that nobody else can learn. This is a song unique to their setting and their experience and their service and their experience of God's sealing, God's protection, God's keeping through the very worst of times. They have a song that is only their song. But I would suggest so do you. Worship is most real when it is personal. Worship is most authentic for you. It is most powerful for you when it is your story. When you're singing worship as your testimony to the Lord. When your prayer is the genuine prayer out of your heart, even when your heart is broken. But you can share that with the Lord. You can tell him how you're feeling. He's big enough. He can take it. Worship is most meaningful when it is real. And it is your experience with God. You have a unique redemptive story to tell to others and to sing to God. And that is your privilege of worship that nobody else can add to or take away from you. They've not defiled themselves with women in verse 4, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Oh, well, it's good they didn't defile themselves with women. You're glad to hear that, right? What's What's wrong with women? What's John's problem with women here? What's that all about? At least half of you are wondering, right? Well, they are single, apparently. They are virgins. They have not married. And yet, he, John, John's not railing against marriage here. Marriage is a good thing. Remember, God said in the garden, it is not good for man to be alone. And if you'd known very many single guys, you would say yay and Amen. And yet in the church, don't we often do just that? Don't we often look at singleness as just this pause in between and when are you going to get on with your life, you know, get married, have a family, get going with the norm, such that those who are single within the church often feel like they're on the fringes, that they don't really fit. And maybe it's having now become single and how do I now fit? Or maybe it's I've been single, I've not ever married, I've not yet married, I don't know if I'll marry, but where do I fit? You can extend that into, okay, I'm married, but I, I haven't followed the, the normal family path with children and so on. That hasn't been God's call for us. But let's talk about singleness for a minute. Because these had a unique, particular role in history 
at one of the most difficult times, the most difficult time in human history, where they are going to be the specific and particular witnesses of the Lamb and His salvation in the very worst of environments, and they are going to be wholly devoted to Him in that. And it reminds me again of Paul. I said these were like 144,000 Pauls. Paul writes this way in 1 Corinthians 7 where he has much to say about marriage, but he also has something to say about singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 7, he says, I wish that all of you all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from the Lord, one of one kind and one of another. So a life of singleness is what Paul's describing, as we will see. Well, let me just finish reading it here. To the unmarried and the widows I say... It is good for them to remain single as I am. Later on in the chapter, he says, Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. Can I get an amen? Careful, guys. Careful, careful. Let the women say it. I was close. (laughs) Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. He says, in view of the present distress, there may be reason not to take for yourself the privilege of marriage, as Paul describes for himself, in order to be wholly devoted to a particular calling of the Lord upon your life. That's not second-class Christian. That is a unique gifting and calling from God for you to grab hold of and run with. And I don't know if it's for a season or for life, but I would speak to you who are single. In this moment, you have an opportunity for single-mindedness. You have an opportunity for devotion to the Lord without other competing, rightly competing demands on your attention and your devotion. Paul goes on in this chapter to say the, one, the man who is married must care for the needs of his wife. The woman who is married must consider the needs of her husband. The one who is single can devote himself to the needs of the Lord, to the things of the Lord. You have an opportunity without other responsibilities to devote your attention, your energies, your purposes to the Lord, your walk with him and what he would call you to do. And I don't know what is in your future. But if you are single, I would urge you to step into this day. For the day it is, say, Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to live in this moment to do your work, to walk with you, and how you would prepare me for whatever the future holds? You could be so looking for and longing for something in the future that you are not available to the Lord and his purposes for you in the present. Let God work in your life, in the present, in this circumstance for his greater eternal purposes. One of the things we say, one of the things I want to see here is this unique privilege of preparing Israel for her Savior is given to a bunch of single folk. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. Paul was single, Jesus was single. Whatever the latest scholars write, Jesus was single too. Wholly devoted to God's calling. And there are times when you can withstand, yeah, 
I'm going to stand for God's truth even if they kill me for it. But what if they kill your wife or your husband for it? What if they kill your young children in front of you for it? Can you stand then? It's going to be that evil. And my word to you is just, if God has called you in this moment of singleness, live there with him. Live there with him, not as an extra burden, but as an opportunity in this moment. Lord, what would you have me to do? They are the speakers of God's truth in contrast to the beast and the false prophet's lies. They are the one to speak God's truth in this moment, even when it's contrary to the age. And now as we look further down, we look and we see a glimpse of God's future. We see a, a glimpse of God's redemptive kingdom as seen with the lamb with these 144,000, the first fruits of all Israel who will be saved. And then we look further down in verse 14. And again, I looked and behold. You see how, how God is redirecting John's eyes? John, don't look at all the trouble. Don't look at all the mess. It is a mess. I've got that. John, look to the future. Church, look to God's glorious future. I looked and behold. And that's a, that's, a, that's a framing phrase. We're supposed to have the middle section framed by what we're to look and behold. And behold is a funny word, but it moves from I looked and I saw, and he's telling something that he saw about in the past, but he, when he says, I looked and behold, he draws us into a present vision. John is inviting us to see what he saw. He wants us to see God's future as a reality. I looked and, I, and, and behold, there it is, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. With a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. There is a reaping like a wheat harvest, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. You could say the fields are white unto harvest. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple. There's a lot of other angels here. We're going to meet more of them still. And the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle. I'm sorry, I skipped the line there. Another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So now we have a second harvest, a later harvest. This is the grape harvest, which comes after wheat harvest. And then we have a grape harvest. What are you going to do with these grapes? And he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, some people would suggest that there's just two different harvests, the wheat harvest and then the grape harvest, that are both being used to say the same thing. God is going to harvest. God is going to judge the earth. I think there's something different. Most, most commentators actually think there's two harvests going on here. There are two different harvests. You see, harvest in the Scripture is used as God's ingathering, His rescue, as well as God's judgment coming. It's used in both ways. Let me give you some examples of that. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Israel is holy to the Lord, the first fruits of His harvest. 
Israel's God's own people. But he is going to redeem to himself as his own people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Israel is just the first fruits of it. Look what God is going to do. He's going to gather in many. Jesus refers to a harvest of the saved in John chapter 4. It's not Israel. It's the Samaritans. Those whom Israel despised and looked down on. And would God ever save them? Does God even care about them? And, God's, and Jesus says, look into the fields for they are white unto harvest. And he's talking about those Samaritans coming out of the city because they had heard the story of the woman and they wanted to meet Jesus. They wanted to know if they could believe on him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. And he's talking about the, the, the harvest of the redeemed. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest. The harvest is abundant. And there will be a harvest of the redeemed. There will be the harvest of the rescue. God will ingather his own and bring them to himself. That's the first harvest. So in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the sorrows, in the midst of even great persecution, in the midst of hell on earth, he, he tells his own, look to God's future. Look to God's coming harvest. God will bring you to be with him. And there's another harvest coming as well. And God will rightly judge those who have resisted and rebelled him from the beginning until now. God will judge his enemy, the beast and the false prophet and Satan and all who have aligned themselves with them. All who have refused through all of this clarity, who have refused to believe on God's Savior they will be judged. God will make all this wrong right. He will remove the wrong. He will restore things as they should be. And yet, even with that reality, in the midst of a, a coming future, God's future is certain for both for you and for those who have made God his enemy, we are to lead into God's future. And what does that look like? Leaning into God's future, the reality of that future that is coming in this little interlude in chapter 14, it involves three realities that the church needs to hold on to. Things that will be true in that day that followers of Jesus need to hold on to. Things then in John's day, his churches, they need to hold on to these truths. And it's passed down for us that these are things, as we hold on to the hope of the future, we don't just say, okay, I'm going to look to the future, forget about the present. No, no, in light of the future, what do I do in the presence? What does God do in the present? Now let's back up and look at from verse 6. Then I saw another angel. I told you there were lots of angels. Don't get them confused. There's another angel. Doesn't really matter which one. Flying directly overhead. Okay, this is after, okay, we've seen the future of God's kingdom coming. We haven't yet been reminded of the harvest, but sandwiched in between those two, the good stuff's in the middle of the sandwich, and here it is. There's an angel flying directly overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language of people. What? All of this has gone on. They've had every opportunity and they've said, no, thank you, God. We want nothing to do with this. We like this beast guy. We think we're listening to him. Might be ready to sign up and take his mark. 
God, we're really not interested, thanks. Would you just go away, please? That's what's going on on the earth. And yet, God invites still. Is God patient? Is God long-suffering? In fact, God is so long-suffering and patient that you would get to the point would say, Come on, God! Give it up. Give up on them. They're not listening. They don't care. Just, God, get on with it. Have you ever felt that way? You have too. Maybe you didn't say it quite that way, but yes, you have. You felt that way. That's okay. We ran into that in chapter 7 with those saints under the altar. They felt that way too. They said, Lord, how long? How long? And yet, God waits a little longer, a little longer. And there's good news there for someone you know. There's good news there maybe for someone here that God yet waits. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is still calling. And if that is our God, that is also his calling for us. There's people that we easily give up on. There's somebody that I've basically given up on. And yet God surprised me this weekend. And I heard a confession there that I have been longing to hear. I don't know how all that's going to work out yet. But I was reminded that God has a whole lot more patience and mercy than I do. But we can lean into it. That, I think, is the, the, the example that's laid for us here. We can lean into it. God's patient, his mercy. The angel of God still invites. There's another angel following that says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's like he's following the first angel. He's saying, and don't wait too long, by the way. <laughs> don't wait too long, by the way, because time is running out. You have this moment. You don't know if you have the next one. And there's another angel after that. Okay, Babylon is fallen. The world, and all of, not merely Babylon, a past city. It's called Hollywood. You talk of Hollywood. You speak of a, of a city in, in Southern California, right? But Hollywood is bigger than that. Hollywood actually happens in Georgia. Hollywood happens in Vancouver, B.C. I think there's more, there's, there's more filming done in Vancouver, B.C. than there is in Southern California anymore. Hollywood happens in a lot of places. Hollywood, you can speak of Hollywood as a big entertainment empire and even a philosophy and worldview. And Hollywood is also a place. And that's what's being done here. It's not merely Babylon, an old city, fell a long time ago when the Persians came along. No, the whole system of these empires who would set themselves up as we're going to manage the mess of humanity, we don't need God. That is almost over. The gig is almost up. The whole Babel idea. Now we've come back to the kids' talk. The whole notion of Babel, we can manage our way, we can build our own tower that will be our own recognition, our own glory, and even our own safe refuge if God sends another flood. No, it won't. The flood is coming like they don't believe. Babylon is fallen. And there's a third angel. And the third angel warns, says, 
you really should listen to that first angel and do not listen to the beast. Do not listen to the false prophet. Do not take his mark. Anyone who worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. God's wrath is coming. The choices are clear. There is one choice. There is God the creator or there's the beast the pretender. There's the dragon behind him. Those are the only choices. The field is being narrowed. The choice will be overwhelmingly clear. And you know something about that first angel's message, if we could look back up there again, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. This is last opportunity. And worship him who made, who created heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water, the things that are about to be hit by those bold judgments. God owns them because God made them. And you know the thrust of the, of the issue today? The difference, the conflict today is this. What's going on in our culture today? It is a disagreement. It is a refusal concerning this. You ready for it? The nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed, right? How does that play out in, American, in, in this American moment? It was said once. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Wait a minute. It doesn't say that all men are equal. It says that all humanity is created equal. And that's what humanity is called to believe in the last days, that God is our maker. It is him we are accountable to not the beast in his rebellion. And that we are endowed, let's double down, by our creator with certain inalienable, unseparatable rights. Rights do not come from the government. Read, rights do not come from the beast. We recognize that we have certain rights to life and liberty that come from God himself because he's our maker. And that is the dispute of America today. That's the root of it. We will not have this man rule over us. We will not be those made by God. We will be those who make ourselves and build our own towers and set our own rules. That's the issue. And God is giving humanity one last chance to meet him on his terms by his provision of Jesus as Savior. Worship him who made heaven and earth. And John says here in all of this, this reality of this future, this is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Hold on. God's future is coming. Keep your faith in God's future. God's promise is sure. Your hope will be realized who in the midst of all the pressure, and you've had pressure to cave. You know what it's like. You've had people pressuring you to come on, do this. Come on, what will it hurt? Come on, just, just, just go along. Don't make a fuss. Don't be that one. Don't be, just, just, come, just go along with everybody else. Can't you just go along with everybody else? You've had that pressure. Who keep the command of God rather than the beast. And we're not facing the beast yet. 
But we face that same kind of pressure. A lower degree, but we face it. And yet, instead of giving in, who keep the command of God, you know what God's told you to do. Faith is living there. Your worship of God is doing what you know God has said for you to do. As you feed your soul out of his word and and his word comes to you and, and you know God is saying, do this. Walk here. Sacrifice in this way. And when you do that, you have lived by faith. And this is our opportunity for that. I talked about singleness as an opportunity. This life in this moment, this is our only opportunity to live by faith, trusting God in his word for what we have not yet seen. This, then, is God's workshop for eternity. God is working in us today by our responding to him, not by sight, but by faith. When we exercise by faith our trust in God and believe for what we don't yet see, this is where we build Muscles of faith in God that we will continue to live with all through eternity. This life, living by faith, is God's workshop. We will one day live by sight. But now we live by faith. And now we have the, the singular, the unique opportunity to please God by faith. And that's today. Here's the call for endurance of the faith, then continue. Endurance of the saints is to continue in your faith. Trust and obey. And then heaven gives its amen. There's a voice from heaven. I don't know if it's God or the Lamb. And it's, it's, it's amened by the Spirit. Write this. John, write this down. Don't miss this part. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on even though it costs them their lives to hold to their faith and their testimony in Jesus, when it costs them their lives to obey God instead of the beast, yet blessed are you. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. What we do by faith follows into eternity. What you do today matters. What you decide today matters. How you walk in God's ways, even though it costs you something. The sacrifices you make, the care for one another, the mercy extended, the shame you've taken on yourself because of others mocking your faith, and yet you have not struck back, but you have left that with the Lord, will follow you into glory. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So I don't know how that plays out for you today. I don't know the pressure you're facing at work. I don't know the situation with your finances. I don't know how the godlessness that surrounds you and how choices, those whom you love, the choices that they are making, how that wears on your soul and could cause you to lose hope. I don't know about the, the temptations you're facing and how those temptations wear you down and cause you to withdraw in shame or guilt because you gave in. I don't know about the weariness that just comes with the weariness of your heart just because you're old and tired or the weariness of your heart because you're young and tired. But hold on to your hope. God's future is sure, and it is coming. 
and our Savior and King will make all that's wrong right. And this is our moment to trust him in the midst of trouble and adversity until our faith does become sight. The faithful will rest. The rebels will be judged. Your king is coming. His rest is not a heavenly retirement, but a heavenly shalom, a heavenly goodness and peace with God in his creation forever. That's our future. And it doesn't look like much in the present, but it will be. And keeping that future before you will strengthen you in the present when it will be difficult. We lean into God's future if we keep our eyes on it. His coming kingdom, his coming harvest. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us to hold on to our hope? Father, would you help us indeed to to long for your kingdom to come? to look for it, to pray for it. Yes, indeed, Father, we would say, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, then let your will be done in my life. Father, that I would glorify you in the midst of whatever adversity or evil around me, that I would glorify you by trusting you anyway. Lord, guard my heart from being intimidated Guard my heart from being discouraged and in despair. Guard my heart from giving up on your work in me. Guard my heart from giving up on your work in people around me. Lord, strengthen me to give your invitation still while the opportunity is there because I believe in your future more than this present. Lord, help us to hold fast to your hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.